and just make sure we're all set up. One second. Okay. Bismillah, peace and blessings, everyone. I'm Aziza, and welcome to episode number eight of Unraveling the Truth with Dr. Omar Zaid and David Livingstone. Alhamdulillah, we finally have both of these great minds back together again after a couple of cancellations, but Alhamdulillah, we're here, and this is going to be a very powerful podcast, inshallah. So, assalamu alaikum. Let's go ahead and get started. Brother David, are you there? Can you hear us? Yes, I can. can okay, me? okay. Just wanted to make sure you were there. Okay, so this evening's topic, it was based on a question from uh, one of the viewers, which was, what is the connection between transhumanism, um, bisexuality, and transgenderism? Well, that's a very, very big question. <laughs> okay, so has... can we break it down? Well, uh, I, let me just give some some introductory thoughts here, and then we'll we'll bounce back and forth between myself and David, inshallah. Um, inshallah. It has a long history. This is not a a new phenomenon. What's new about it is the intensity. Uh, and the extent to which it has um, affected the world and is affecting the world now. Um, each time this monster, this particular beast, has raised its head, a ruin of the higher civilization that allowed it to enter uh, was imminent. It happened over and over and over again. Uh, this was uh, proven by a fellow by the name of Unwin, Professor Unwin, about 100 years ago. He didn't believe it was true, okay, that, um, that you know, sexual freedom would destroy uh, civilization. But when he did the uh, research of all the great civilizations that we know, over the last 7,000 years from the beginning of the historical record, every time sexual libertarianism raised its head and the restrictions went beyond the limitations of the heterosexual bond so that uh, other sexual relations were not only tolerated but made popular, every civilization that allowed that was destroyed without error, without exception, there were none. And so Unwin, when he published his book a hundred years ago, had to concede that he was wrong. And he did this on a thorough uh, Ibn Khaldunian uh, type uh, review of the known historical literature all over the world. It didn't make any difference. So, uh, this is not a new phenomenon. It's also based on the occult. 
and the occult world, what we're talking about is the, the hidden world of um, the left-hand path of the practice of magic. There is a right-hand path as well. Most of the world is subject to the right-hand path, which is under the guidance of the left-hand path. And these are the elitist, and these are the people who actually uh, control the elitist groups themselves. There are many amongst the elite who don't know what they're involved in. And um, <clears throat> so this history is something that David and I are somewhat familiar with this hidden history, the history that uh, surrounds the various mythologies of the world, especially the Greek myths and those myths which have uh, mystery religions that have come out of the, uh, the Middle East and have then spread themselves west. Um, and this history is, is old. It's as old as recorded history. We know it. Uh, there's no doubt about it. These myths all have to do with some form of gender confusion, some form of anthropomorphic uh, uh, extensions of the human imagination onto the Godhead, onto Allah himself, so that uh, man is busy, busied himself. The elitists have busied themselves making God look like a man for thousands of years, okay? So this is not new. And that's at the core of this, um, this movement now. It is a form of humanism. It is a satanic form of humanism that has everything to do with confusion and chaos because at the core of what is reliable in the human experience is gender identity. It's at the very core. And at the core of um, a sustainable civilization is not the United Nations, is not the Statue of Liberty, is not Tel Aviv and all of their uh, LGBT uh, LGBT gangs and gangsters, because that's what they are. They're gangsters. Okay. Um, no, it's marriage and it's heterosexual marriage. And marriage cannot be extended beyond the heterosexual bond. Those are not marriages, even scientifically. Legally, yes, you can give them a legal status, but are they, in fact, scientific marriages? No, not according to the principles of Adab, not at all. So the mystery religions have been toying with human identity and divine identity for thousands of years. And it has now come to the forefront in this transhumanist uh, movement, which is a, you can say it's kind of like an agender movement, okay? Because what you want is, what they want is a sort of an asexual identity because then that doesn't, that, that erases the hegemony from both the male and the female, you see? And then you have something that doesn't exist, you see? An asexual entity does not exist, especially at the human scale. 
at the human level. There's no such thing as an asexual identity, either uh, with respect to the morphogenic estate or the mental estate. It doesn't exist. Everybody identifies with one gender or another to one degree or another along this scale of uh, manifestation so that you have a norm in the center and then you follow that sine wave and it branches out to either end beyond which you have uh, abnormal representations and these abnormal representations do not sustain society. They do not sustain human life. They don't sustain anything <laughs> beyond themselves until they come to an end. Not even themselves, they don't sustain. Not even themselves, you see. So uh, what you have here is the culmination of what is called in the scripture, the mystery of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Amorites. The iniquity of the Amorites uh, is written, I think it's in Isaiah, is not yet come to its full. And when that iniquity has come to its full, then the end of days is near. Okay, and this is what the prophet referred to when he said, well, you've seen me now, the, the end time is near because I'm the last prophet. Okay, the final days are just around the corner. And in divine terms, that was just a day and a half ago. A thousand years for us is one day for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, just yesterday, you see. So this has been going on. This recorded history is only a week old, what I'm just in divine terms, you see. So it's only been going on for about seven days, <laughs> if you will. Okay, so we're coming to the eighth day, and the eighth day belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in some approaches to occult terminology and occult numerology. Uh, so <clears throat> in introducing the topic, that's what I have to say. It's nothing new, but it is coming to a head. Okay, this whole thing is coming to a head and it needs to be explored inshallah in the terms that David and I are going to share with you today. Now, David and I have had no discussion about this between us. Okay, so what's going to happen in this program is that what knowledge he has gained and what knowledge I have gained are going, is going to come together. Both, both baskets of knowledge are going to come together and you're going to experience a complementarity that uh, can only occur by divine design. We have no agenda. David has no agenda. I have no agenda other than seeking the truth. And David and I have not um, corresponded or cooperated on any venture whatsoever. Okay. We're considering doing some sort of a, a series of interviews like this on other geopolitical topics. But this occult matter right now that's before us, we have not discussed. Not at all. I have read some of David's books, and he probably has read some of my literature as well. But that's the extent of our conversations. So between us. So what's going to happen here is spontaneous. 
David, I'll turn it over to you and uh, you take it from there. I think that was a, a fairly good introduction to the subject, alhamdulillah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's in, the, in the larger scheme of things, I think it's a small matter uh, because what, what is happening, of course, is that in the larger scheme of things, we have to understand that the world is being subjected to a satanic conspiracy, uh, you know, in the simplest terms. And, uh, you know, we, we can't, we can't, ex we don't, we can't understand uh, the devil's um, activity as just being uh, targeting humans, uh, you know, individually. But there seems to be a larger plot to uh, guide the entire of humanity towards creating uh, their own imprisonment. So basically creating what's being referred to as a new order, which uh, is seen by uh, its proponents as, as uh, manifesting the book of Revelation, uh, preparing the arrival of the Messiah. So um, that's, how, that's how the builders are being duped. They think that they are creating a better world, creating a world that will be governed by uh, complete uh, liberty, which basically is what Satanism is all about, right? It's do what thou wilt. Mm, yes. So uh, we're... What we're experiencing, what we're witnessing is the slow deterioration of not only Western civilization, but human civilization as a whole. We're, we're watching the, the deterioration of, of humanity. We need to understand, I think, that the, the larger lesson is that the, all of this is a, you know, on the day of judgment, we're all going to view the totality. And we're going to see the significance of the totality. And the thing is, is in the meantime, a lot of people are part of the lesson, but they don't realize what role that their deception is playing. So ultimately, the lesson will be that God will show humanity uh, what happens when they turn away from obedience to him, from worship to him. And the consequence of that is that, in fact, there's, you know, there's a Haiti, I think it's probably well known. The prophet said that uh, society is like a boat and there's people inside the boat. And if the people inside the boat get decide that they are thirsty and decide that they want to get something to drink, that they bore a hole in the side of the boat. If the other people in the boat don't stop them from doing it, the entire boat sinks. And that's the lesson for, for humanity. So that, what we're watching, we're watching the consequences of our neglect. And what that neglect is, is that, uh, you know, like the Quran is clear. The Quran says that God checks one people by means of another. That's how, mm. that's how history proceeds. And when that doesn't happen, then you get uh, people with distorted, confused ambitions who try to impose their 
particular view, outlook on the world uh, onto the rest. And right now we have a, a probably various groupings with an agenda, which I am not sure what their level of consciousness is or their level of, of uh, how conscious they are of the, the evil that they're bringing about, but they are uh, actively bringing about the destruction of humanity. So I think this is what we need to remember that what we're witnessing right now, again, is a plan to humiliate humanity. This will be the form of a global state that will impose uh, the opposite of the rule of Allah. That is correct. That is correct. That's exactly what's taking place. And it is a plan. And what the, the topic today, this whole business about uh, um, the cultural uh, destruction uh, through uh, liberal sexuality and uh, the gender identity uh, problems, this is part of the plan. It's a major part of this overall greater plan. And it is in fact, a conspiracy, it is a proven conspiracy. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And if you'll bear with me here, let me uh, read some references to that effect. Uh, and I will establish that beyond any doubt in anyone's mind who's listening to us today, that this is in fact a conspiracy and not just any conspiracy, but a concerted Jewish conspiracy. That's what it is. In 1923, a group of German Marxists established a think tank in Frankfurt in Germany. They called it the Institute for Social Research, and it became known as the Frankfurt School. And this Frankfurt School is, in fact, the creator of cultural Marxism. To translate Marxism from economic into cultural terms, Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, Wilhelm Reich, Eric Fromm, and Herbert Marcuse had to contradict Marx on several points. They argued that culture was not just part of what Marx called society's superstructure, but it was an independent and very important variable. They also said that the working class would not lead a Marxist revolution because it was becoming at that time part of the middle class, which was true because of genuine progress. Then if they wouldn't lead, who's going to lead? Marcuse answered the question by saying, a coalition of blacks, of students, of feminist women, and of homosexuals, they will lead it. In 1926, an Italian communist named Antonio Gramsci, also a Jew, all of the above were Jews. He ended up in Mussolini's prison after a return from Russia. And while there, he wrote in his prison notebooks, which laid out a plan for destroying Western faith and culture. A specific plan to destroy Western faith and culture. Now, don't forget that. His plans included 
ways to undermine and discourage Westerners through the intentional collapse of the existing social structure from within, not without, from within. In 1926, Gramsci advocated not only Marxist class warfare, which was economically focused, but also social and cultural warfare at the same time. This is a war, it's a spiritual war, a psychological war. His theories surrounded uh, the idea that this is going to be a slow march through uh, culture or institutions, which he envisioned to destroy the West. And these all are now enshrined in the current American social policies. His theories, they all surround the concept of hegemony and counter hegemony. They were designed to destroy Western social structure and overthrow it from within. Hegemony as defined by Gramsci is that which widely accepted, it's a, a widely accepted system of values, morals, ethics, and social structure, which holds a society together and creates a cohesive people. These include authority, morality, sexual restraint, monogamous marriage, personal responsibility, patriotism, national unity, community, tradition, heredity, education, conservatism, language, Christianity, law and truth. His theory called for the media and communications institutions to slowly co-opt the people his theory called for media and communications to counter the hegemony of the propaganda message. All of these were Jews, and the hegemony that they countermanded was the hegemony that is established by heterosexual marriage. Now, what I just read to you is written by a Jew, and not just any Jew. This was a Wall Street mainstream Wall Street Jew who published this in a letter to the Times in March of 2016. So these are not just my ideas, okay? This is a Jew telling you how it is and what happens. The title of the ARC article is uh, The Frankfurt School in Cultural, Cultural Marxism, a primer written by a fellow by the name of Goldman now, to back that up, bear with me here, because I know where I'm going, and you will too, <laughs> all in a few minutes, because I don't want your listeners to think that David and I are just making this stuff up. We're not. When I said it's documented, it's a documented conspiracy, that's what it is. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is a conspiracy fact. Okay, now, in a letter to the Times in 1974, a fellow by the name of Antelman, a rabbi, he wrote uh, a um, article on to eliminate the opiate, an in-depth study of communism and conspiratorial group efforts to destroy the Jews and Judaism. Now, you re recall that I've said before that Jews are being manipulated themselves. 
there is a group of Jews and there's a group above the Jews, black magicians, who use the Jews. The Jews have always been used to destroy culture. And that's because their, their basic fundamental belief system has been negated. And so they're holding on and grasping to straws. And so that anything that they find, see, Isa negated it, okay? Isa, Isa negated all of what was Judaism at the time. And he told people to wait for Muhammad. That's very clear in the Gospel of Barnabas. So the Jews had to reinvent themselves after their temple was destroyed, and they did. And so what we're now confronted with, or what they're now confronted with, is a Judaism that has nothing to do with ancient Israel. It's a myth that it does, you see. It's a myth. So what Marvin uh, Antelman here, Rabbi Antelman did, he based his research on the research of Gershwin Shalom. Now Gershwin Shalom is one of the greatest Jewish academics and scholars of this generation. I mean, anyone who wants to know anything about Jewish mysticism and the Kabbalah, they turn to this man. He said Rabbi Antelman traced a straight line from Sabbatai Zevi to the Council on the Foreign Relationships, to the Council on Foreign Relations via the Illuminati members and associations of the 18th century, okay? A straight line from the ancient mystery religions to today's Council of Foreign Relations. And the Council on Foreign Relations is a child of the Tavistock organization in England. And that's a child of the city of London, okay? So this is a straight line. Now, an extract from this reads as followed. The historic center of this mass psi war apparatus is based outside of London in the Tavistock Center. This was established in the aftermath of World War I under the patronage of Duke George of Kent. The original Tavistock Clinic, led by John Rawlings Rees, developed as the psychological warfare center for the royal family and the British intelligence system. In the 30s, Tavistock extended its networks, developed on symbiotic relationships with the Frankfurt School. With <laughs> the Frankfurt School that I've just described, okay? So, this group was created by European oligarchical networks, which are essentially the Guelphs, which focused on the study and criticism of culture from a neo-Freudian standpoint. By World War II's end, the combined influence of Tavistock and Frankfurt School operatives had reached a cadre of psychological shock troops. Rees called them cultural warriors numbering in the several thousands at that time. Today, they number in the millions. These are your neocons and their disciples, okay? All of your neocons 
out of the major schools that we know and invested themselves in Washington DC's apparatus these last 20 years. All of them come out of the University of Chicago, the University of San Diego, the University of Columbia, uh, etc. And this is where the Frankfurt Institute set up its shops after it was moved from Frankfurt, Germany during the time of Hitler to escape Hitler to America. Now, if you want to know all the historical facts about this particular movement to completely destroy America through cultural subversion to the subversion of sexual mores, read Kevin MacDonald, The Culture of Critique and Evolutionary Analysis of Jewish Involvement in the 20th Century of its intellectual and political movements. This is documented intellectual dishonesty, the lack of empirical rigor, the obvious political and ethnic motivation, the expulsion of dissent, which is what happened with Anne uh, Rand's group. Anyone who didn't agree with her was thrown out, <laughs> okay? The collusion amongst the co-ethnics to dominate intellectual discourse and the general lack of scientific spirit. They were not scientists at all. They were expert sophists, expert rhetoricians. They made you believe that they were scientists. And people bought it, okay? Now, what is this? Let's hear from Gilad Atzman. He wrote, the identitarian revolution includes feminism. It was inspired by a few Jewish ideological and philosophical schools, including most importantly, quote unquote, the Frankfurt School. It's Jewish identitarian philosophy, it's Jewish identitarianism, it inspires most if not all contemporary identitarian politics. Now, the Frankfurt School felt that the old tradition should be thrown out on the rubbish heaps of history, exact opposite of what Professor Unwin found, you see. Let's just throw all that out. It's not true. Now, what are they throwing out? They're throwing out faith. They're throwing out family. They're throwing out heterosexuality. They're throwing out everything that makes a nation stand strong and mighty. They were convinced that the subjective experience, not the objective scientific approach, but rather the subjective feelings <laughs> was king. And the objective truth was dead. Affirmation, construction were therefore to be abandoned for desecration and destruction. This was a planned epidemic of psychological warfare. The entire movement undermines natural hegemony in favor of what is unnatural. That's what's taken place. It is now institutionalized in Western culture, predominantly in America, but not just America. If you go to Europe, the same thing's happening. The letter which you shared with me is in Australia. It's now going to be illegal 
to uh, even discuss anything about uh, non-heterosexuality. So the whole point of this movement is to destroy individual, family, and community hegemony and hand it over to the beast that David is just described, you see. That's what's taking place. And Jews were predominantly used and instrumental in this whole process, not just in the psychological warfare, but as I'm working with other, uh, another group on this matter, in the 20th century, Jews were predominantly instrumental in handing over all of the defense mechanisms, the secrets, the technology, the weaponry, from America to Russia and to China. Jews did this, Jews, okay? So with that being said, I'll hand the, 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 the mic or the peace pipe uh, back to David and we'll follow up with um, uh, his perspective as well. Thank you, Brother Omar. Um, <clears throat> you've touched on um, some pretty uh, key important points. Um, so the thing is that with that understanding of history, it's only one side of the dialectic. We need to understand how the other side of the dialectic is being played out uh, to use that perspective for a particular purpose. So, uh, for example, you mentioned Kevin B. McDonald. But Kevin B. McDonald is very much a key figure in the alt-right, which is an organization, which is, sorry, a movement that was largely funded by the Regnery family. And the Regnery family are the godfathers of the American right. Uh, they have been at the forefront of American fascism going all the way back to America First Committee. So where I'm leading with that is that, first of all, when we talk about Jews, we have to be careful that uh, to be Jewish means to be a follower of the Jewish religion. There is no, there is no, you cannot be Jewish if you don't practice the Jewish faith. It's the same thing as suggesting that somebody is Muslim because their parents are Muslim. So a lot of these characters are ethnically Jewish, but they're not Jewish. So Judaism is basically, it's a religion that is considered uh, people of the book. Uh, according to Islamic law, uh, within Islamic state, they come under, uh, ex they come under protection as dhimis. They are allowed to practice their religion, this, despite the fact that we have profound disagreements with them. This is same the case with uh, Christianity. So uh, at the core, uh, as much as we might disagree with it, uh, Judaism is founded largely on the Talmud. And that's the basic basis of the Jewish religion. I'm not an expert on Judaism, so I don't want to be criticized for making uh, uh, generalizations that don't apply, but that's effectively as I understand it. What we have, as you mentioned, is identified by Robert, uh, sorry, Rabbi Antelman, which is that, uh, you know, and if we, in fact, what Rabbi Antelman is talking about is what Sri Lata Bakara is talking about. Start, which is chapter 2, uh, verse 102, which says that after, because chapter, the, what's interesting is fundamentally important is that Bakra, 
the, the, the first large chapter after Fatiha in the Quran, the first hundred or so verses are very much devoted to the Jews, criticizing the Jews for basically having betrayed the covenant, for having um, uh, corrupted their religion, for having uh, altered the Bible. And then it says, outside of that, that there was a group who, who put the religion behind their backs and learned magic. And this is the group that we have, that we are contending with. So, yes. so there, there, is the, there is the Jewish people who are criticized in the Quran for having corrupted their religion, but nevertheless, they are to be regarded as people of the book and they are to be, uh, earn our protection, Islam, inside Islamic State. Within that grouping, there is a smaller uh, group. That are, as long as they're not treacherous. Right. So there's a further group that has apostatized, and they're the ones who've turned to Satanism because according to the Quran, they knew that they were giving up on the afterlife when they decided to learn this magic cult. Yes. So they have survived over the centuries in many forms, and they have based, they have struggled with their larger Jewish community for a long time. Mm. They were tended to be regarded as heretics and exercised varying degrees of influence on Judaism. Mm. It really, until uh, European times, particularly uh, in southern France, when the Kabbalah emerges in the 12th, of late 12th century, and then slowly gains influence, particularly in Spain with the publication of the Zohar, and then finally Isaac Luria, and then the great um, externalization or manifestation of Isaac Luria's thought would be Shabbatai Zavi. Hmm. What you have with Shabbatai Zavi is you have the beginning of this hijacking of Judaism. You have a group who rejected Judaism entirely. They rejected the Talmud in favor of the Zohar. They rejected all of the uh, moral principles of the Bible and deliberately and openly uh, turn, prescribed turning the, the Bible commandments upside down. Yes. So this cult basically gained, slowly gained uh, increasing influence over time. And as Rabbi Antelman points out, the Rothschilds were uh, Sabbatians, and they, they of course, were, and are to this day, uh, probably the richest family in the world, and used their wealth to begin to advance the Sabbatian cause. And what that did is it created a split in Judaism where, uh, for the first time, uh, when until that point it was possible to be excommunicated from Judaism, mm. then this their reform movements began to uh, gain a foothold. And so that today, uh, again, according to Rabbi Antman, you have the fundamental groupings of Judaism. You have what's now called Orthodox Judaism, which is just Judaism. It's now called Orthodox Judaism. And then you have Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism. So uh, Zionism very much derives from those uh, reform movements. So what's important to understand about Zionism is that it's not a religious movement. And this is what this sounds uh, paradoxical to a lot of people who don't who have been convinced with this idea that Jews Jews are a race, which is something that only Zionists uh, could invent. Because when you uh, extract 
religious belief from Jewish identity, all you have left is ethnic identity. So Judaism, sorry, Zionism is not a Jewish, not a Jewish movement. It's a nationalist movement of ethnically, of ethnic uh, people who are typically ethnically uh, Jews. So it's very, this is why Zionism has very much been a contest with the Orthodox community and it still is very much to this day. But uh, because of their wealth, which is uh, largely acquired through the oil of Saudi Arabia, they've been able to attain uh, a level of prominence in the Jewish community to the extent that today the world identifies Zionism with Judaism. So now we have to understand the tactic of the Zionists. And their tactic is a very bold tactic. I think, I think, it's, uh, I think it, 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 uh, it goes back to what Jews call chutzpah, which is audacity, a kind of audacity. Yes. And, and that audacity is the effrontery of exposing the crimes of other Jews to create anti-Semitism uh, and then to use the opposition to anti-Semitism to manipulate it in order to uh, coerce the powerful governments of the world into uh, carrying out policies and activities that support the Zionist agenda. So when you look back at how this is why uh, the focus has largely been on Jewish activity, particularly left-wing Jewish activity. And when really the conspiracy is fascist. So the reality is, is that yeah, uh, yeah. if you go back to the, if you go back to the, the, so the Russian revolution, of course, communism was uh, very much part of this Sabakian uh, tradition. Uh, you know, the, the entire communist movement was a, was a, a fabrication of the Carbonari of the sort of the neo-Illuminati of the, of the 1800s. And um, the, their first success, of course, was the Russian Revolution, which was financed by people like Jacob Schiff and the Warburgs. Mm. So what happened is that after the Russian Revolution, you get a number. So the opposition to the, to the Bolsheviks were the so-called white Russians. A number of them fled to Germany, and then they found an organization called the Aufbau. And the Aufbau were responsible for uh, transmitting the protocols of Zion to the Nazis. And so the plot here, first, you know, I, I, people who are familiar with my uh, research, they know that uh, I have traced the emergence of the protocols to uh, the right of Memphis and Mizraim which again was the creation of the Carbonari, particularly Giuseppe Mazzini, uh, sorry, uh, Gary Baldi. Uh, the protocols were first uh, uh, transmitted to Sergei Nihilus, who did the first translation of the protocols uh, from into Russian by a woman named um, Yuliana Glinka. She was a disciple of uh, Elena Blavatsky. So through and through, you look, you know, the, in fact, the protocols are supposedly plagiarized from a work by Maurice Jolie. Maurice Jolie was a protege of, of, um, of, um, of Memphis Miserium as well. And what's his name? Guy who's the head of a, 
Kremier, Adolf Kremier, who was the head head grandmaster of Memphis Museum. He is also a member of the uh, uh, Alliance Israelite Universelle. So the the protocols were very much a product of the you know high level occultist Zionist, and they used it. First of all, they used it to to uh, alert, you know, supposedly alert the world that uh, the Bolshevik Revolution was a Jewish conspiracy, and that's how they uh, that's that's the reason why they uh, introduced the protocols to the Nazis because that's effectively uh, how they were employed. The lead, so the guy, the main one of the members of the Alpha, one of the main guys who was responsible for the for the propagation of the protocols is a guy named Boris Brassel, and he was teaming up with uh, Henry Ford. So if we understand Nazism, we got to understand Nazism as a product of the Tavistock Institute, again, uh, mm -hmm. in league with the city of London, uh, is a British, uh, uh, a British operation uh, with the help of people like Alistair Crowley. And the purpose was to create this phantom menace to, to create the perception that there was, there is a, uh, a fantastic threat of anti-Semitic threat that uh, threatens the entire Jewish community. And therefore it's necessary to, it was necessary to establish the state of Israel. And that fundamentally was the purpose of the Zion, of the Nazi movement and why they employed the concept of a Jewish conspiracy for that purpose. So what's important to understand is that Boris Brassel, again, who was the lead agent, British agent, uh, who was responsible for, for spreading this fear of a Jewish communist conspiracy, comes to the United States. He comes to the United States and then he becomes what's he's been referred to, quote unquote, the brain trust of the America First Committee. This is a committee created uh, before World War II uh, that was funded by the Nazis, their purpose was to lobby the United States to keep the United States out of World War II. So the America First Committee was made up of all the leading fascists of the time, the German American Bund, the Silver Shirts, and the Klan. So it's important to understand that America First, and everybody's probably familiar with that phrase because it's been repeated often enough by um, uh, Donald Trump as a dog whistle. America First was originally a Klan slogan that dates back from uh, at least the turn of the 1900s. So the American First Committee then evolves into the American Security Council. And the American Security Council is what has been referred to as the heart of the military industrial complex. So basically it's, it's exactly what Eisenhower warned against. It's made up of the military uh, uh, manufacturers, manufacturing, you know, the, 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 the corporations that serve the Pentagon, private corporations. So if they needed justification for military buildup and the only do, do way to do that is fabricate a threat. So the threat that they employed was a threat of communism. And so for, for most people, uh, that's where it ended. But for the right wing in America, it was presented as a Jewish conspiracy. And this is why you find that the America first, uh, sorry, the American Security Council which was funded by, again, the Reagan Ree family, who are supporters of, of uh, Kevin McDonald. How, what, they, uh, what they did from that point forward is they 
continue to push forward this concept of a Jewish conspiracy as being sort of the, the background of the um, the common, the so-called communist conspiracy in the United States. The whole time, it being a fascist conspiracy that was using this myth of a communist conspiracy, because the America First Committee uh, and the American Security Council were part of the larger uh, fascist international, which connected them to all the fascist organizations worldwide, who basically coordinated with the same basic agenda. And this is why in the United States. Um, I'll skip a lot of the details in between, but this is why uh, uh, the, the American Security Council, to jump a few steps, well, most important organization that I follow from that was the John Birch Society. And the John Birch Society was very much focused on exposing the New World Order conspiracy, exposing the role of the Rockefellers and the Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission. So they basically, they they sugarcoated their poison pill by giving the impression that they were actually exposing the conspiracy when actually they were they were, um, what's the word, whitewashing it, or they were distorting it for their own particular purpose. When in fact, they were the, they were the, the instigators, or the, they were the conspirators, at least a, a component of a conspiracy, which is a fascist conspiracy. And so uh, the, the American Security Council evolved into the Council for National Policy and the Council for National Policy is where you get people like Steve Bannon and uh, Robert Mercer, and this is where uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, effectively yeah, goes. Yeah. So they're on their own private we, crusade, Steve. <laughs> yeah. So you know what's very important to understand is that if I can share my screen. Yes. Um, disabled. How to do that? Thank you. Mm -hmm. You made me host. <laughs> okay, so I've got this chapter on the culture wars. This is going to be, you know, a lot of detail that uh, I wish more people would understand the significance of it. I, I fear that it's so. Uh, it, the, most of the information is so remote that I, that I worry that few people are going to read it. But this, you know, basically the, the this whole idea. And Brother Omar, this is where I think this whole dialectic comes in. You know, the, the role of the Frankfurt School was real and they were the ones who basically were behind the whole uh, left-wing orientation of the United States, but they were just mm -hmm. one pole of the dialectic. Of the other pole of the dialectic, which I believe is the more powerful one, is the right-wing side. So when you look at- Ah, but who financed both sides? Of course. That's it's it's a dialectic, right? Both sides are necessary, and that's how it works. Right. So behind, so this is why in the United States the the fascist the fascist propaganda has exploited that very story to their own advantage. So when you look at the Tea Party and movements like that, it's all based on this perception that the the Frankfurt School was largely responsible for the left wing. Um, tendency in the United States, which is mostly true. Behind some, you know, behind a lot of it is you have guys like the Koch brothers. Right? So the Koch brothers, right, there's a lot of details here. Weird, weird thing is that one of the Koch brothers went to what's called a freedom school. The freedom school was founded by, uh, what's his name? Too many names, I can't remember. But part of the whole network, this is what I color in my, cover in my earlier chapters, part of the whole network of the AAC Link network. Also at the Freedom School was uh, John uh, 
Carrie Thornley, who was the founder of Discordianism. Whole other tangent. <laughs> so basically, you know, this is why you see in the United States is you have this polarization, which is created, which goes back to 1984, really, which is the beginnings of the, uh, it really goes back to when uh, Fox News was introduced to the United States, because this is the divide that they're trying uh, to create. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the divide and conquer sort of the, the, the heightened dialectic that they're creating in the United States. And you're seeing it recently with the, uh, the attack on the Capitol Hill. That's basically a direct uh, consequence of, of what they're creating. So they, again, highlighted the role of the Frankfurt School. But what's interesting is one of the guys who was really responsible for that is uh, a guy named Paul uh, Gottfried. And uh, what's interesting about Paul Gottfried is that he happens to have been a pupil of Herbert Marcuse. And Herbert Marcuse, of course, people are familiar with the topic, he's the guru of the new left. So this entire, all, you know, this liberalism that we're seeing in the United States that's leading to this, you know, these, this sort of pro-LGBT, you know, uh, ideas are really a direct consequence of the new left, which, um, Marcuse created. Guys like Paul Gottfried are taking the other tack. So Gottfried is in league with the Reaganry family, which again are the godfathers of the American right. And he and um, uh, Murray Rothbard, uh, because this is where, this is how the agenda works on both sides. So they're using uh, liberalism for the moral approach, the moral attack on the United States, and they're using the right for the financial economic agenda to undermine the United States, which is called neoliberalism. And both, and both they're support, all Jews. No, they are Jewish. They are Sabbatians. They are heretics. <laughs> you have to be careful because we got to understand how the plot works, yeah. right? We, yeah, I understand. I works. understand. Right. But they're all supporting Israel, aren't they? One well, way or another. These guys are ultimately they are Zionists, and that's the fact. Yeah. What they yeah. will do though is that they will use our criticism and call it uh, they will call it anti-Semitism, and they can do that if we say that it's uh, Jewish. And then we're serving their agenda if that's what we do. So I believe it's important that we make we continue to make the distinction. So Murray Rothbard he carried out what he called outreach to rednecks. And that was basically uh, using uh, racist, uh, racist um, um, uh, jargon rhetoric to team it up with their neoliberal uh, politics. And that's why basically uh, you have this continuing uh, attempt uh, to uh, align themselves with the right-wing United States most recently with the alt-right, which again was entirely funded by the Reaganry family, uh, uh, to push their uh, neoliberal uh, agenda. So, you know, I, I don't want to take up too much time, but basically to summarize how the, how the dialectic works, right? Because as like Hegel described it, you have, uh, you have a, 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 a thesis and you have an antithesis, which leads mm -hmm. to a synthesis. So what you have is that you have uh, the left and the right. But what the left is really, it's not just left. It's, it's left-wing economics aligned with uh, atheist, atheism, effectively. 
or in opposition to uh, religious-based values. <clears throat> then you have the right, which is uh, pro-capitalist or neoliberal economics, but aligned with religious values. What, we, what the world needs and what Islam is, is, is left-wing economics with religious values. So really Islam is left-wing liberalism and left-wing religion. What they're trying to do is they're trying to switch the opposites. So what they're doing is that they use, they, 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 they go to the right and they say, look at the left, they're a bunch of you know, pro-abortion activists. So yes, we want mm -hmm. to reject left-wing economics, we'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then they go to the right, sorry, to the left, and they say, uh, look at the right, they're a bunch of uh, fascists. So yes, we're gonna throw out religion. So, so out of this competition, this phony uh, dialectic, the result that they want is uh, liberal values and fascist economics, and that's the goal. And of course, out of those liberal values is, you know, LGBT movement, support for, uh, you know, liberal approaches to, and of course, they package it with other things like, you know, uh, anti-racism and so on and so forth, but ultimately, that's the, that's the tactic. Indeed, indeed. Can we uh, reduce this uh, full screen? I, I can't see my own. There we go. Thank you. Um, yeah, this dialectic is uh, unfortunately financed by the same people uh, at the top of the pyramid. And they finance both sides. And there's a goodly portion of them who are... Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to use the word now in the presence of our uh, good brother, um, Jews, you see. So uh, how to avoid that confusion, Call we have Zion. to say, okay, well, we have, the, <laughs> we have the religious Jews who should be outing the non-religious Jews who are manipulating the world. And the fact of the matter is that most of them are not. Most of them are supporting this dialectic and the goal, which is the new world capital in Jerusalem. Zionism. Yeah, so this is Zionism. And even the religious Jews that you are uh, doing your best to protect here, David, and I, I appreciate that, even religious Jews are protecting this wonderful lie. Not all of them. Not, well, how many, David? How many? Well, there's quite give a few of them. Give me an estimate. Uh, but there's quite a bit of opposition within the Jewish community to the Zionist movement. Not less and less. Insufficient. insufficient. Of course. I, don't, I don't want to argue with you over this because we're going to get off the point. The point that I'm trying to make is their effort to expose these creatures of the left-hand path is insufficient and always has been. Sure. Okay. And they are supporting the UN's move. Muslims, to, are, Muslims are in the same era. Yeah. There, there are very few of them. But we have to be careful and never to blame the entire group for the crime. I, I, I understand. So what do, we, what do we want to do here, uh, uh, David? Do we want to use Jews and non-Jews, religious Jews, political Jews? What, Zionist. what, what do you want? With Zionist. You want to just use the term Zionist. Okay. Then how do we exclude the Jews from Zionism when they're, in fact, supporting Zionism? They don't. They're, they don't. They're, 
Well, I don't see very many of them not supporting they're, Zionism. They're look, I look, see it. They're this there. Google, this Google Jews against Zionism. They're such a minute faction, oh, they're ineffective. Still, the fact of the matter is that the can't bankers. Blame, can't blame everybody. Can't blame them all. That's the a trap. You're, you're getting off the point here, David. The fact of the matter is that the people who are controlling the dialogue at both ends, whether it's fascism or liberalism, it doesn't make any difference. They're Jews. No, they're not Jews. They're ethnically descended from people who used to practice the Jewish faith. They are not. They, they, they put on they the beanie, practice, they go to the wall. They do not practice the Jewish religion. They That's put it. on the beanie Rabbi and they Antelman, go to the wall. There's, there's may I interject? I'm sorry. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interject. Um, yes. Can we try to get back on topic, please? Because this topic is very important. Well, yeah, and, and, this well, is, and this is exactly what they want. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is exactly what they want. Right. Yeah. Exactly. The, the topic is the LGBT movement, the androgyne movement, the, the problem with sexology, not so much the political movement, although the political movement is, in fact, uh, important and it is the bigger picture. But that's not the topic for our discussion here. The topic for our discussion is the undermining of the cultural mores that the right ostensibly represents. Okay. Now, the left was used to undermine these and very effectively. They are undermined all over the world now. Okay. And to the effect that now they're passing laws that uh, you cannot discuss anything that countermands this false dialectic, this false narrative that uh, gender is a facade, gender is um, not real. So <clears throat> the problem is that this, as I tried to state in the beginning, is that this whole point, this whole point of political manipulation no matter where you have right or left, it all goes back to the ancient mystery religions. And that's exactly what Rabbi Antelman said in his diet, in his narrative, in his expose. And it's supported by other uh, researchers. And what we're talking about, again, let's get back to the fundamental here is hegemony. And hegemony in the final analysis is upheld as the vicegerency of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this vicegerency is only represented by the heterosexual union in marriage. It's not represented by any other um, gender identity. So the confusion of the heterosexual uh, identity is what's at stake here, and it's what has been eroded. And uh, there's, a, um, there's a, an ironic, um, a, an ironic um, uh, occurrence here because the students who come out of the Frankfurt School are continuing to produce their uh, sexology literature and their gender literature. And one of them is a, a lady by the name of uh, Judith Butler who is a well-known writer and academic. And uh, she has uh, written something on what she called the uh, divine performative, you see. And this is out of the Frankfurt School. And she took it a step further. And she says, well, you know, this identity, the gender identity 
that is, is what brings the I, the ego, into being. And it is exhaustively constituted uh, according to meaning and purpose so that the matrix of gender relations establishes itself prior to the emergence of the human eye. So that the naming of the gender boundary, male or female, is an inculcation, a repeated inculcation of the norm. And she calls this, wow, the divine performative. Imagine that. Somebody coming out of the Frankfurt School saying that this is the divine performative. And because it's a divine performative that uh, establishes the cultural norm, we have to fight against it. The irony here is that Allah has established this divine performative. You see, the norm is, is heterosexual. That is the norm. And so they want to counter this narrative. And my position is that this narrative has been countered for thousands of years on the basis of the mystery religions, you see. Now, Rabbi Antelman said that this Jewish movement, this movement called the Sabbateanism, um, uh, and what eventually became uh, you know, today's Chabad movement and uh, all the various permutations, uh, Shabbat is, uh, is supporting this particular movement. Now, ostensibly, they're the most religious of the Jews. Are they not? Of course they are. Of course they are, you see. They have all the outward manifestations. They wear the beanie, they recite all of the prayers, they go to, you know, this, that, and the next thing uh, on, on Fridays and Saturdays, whatever their uh, holy days are. They support it all but they're politically under, they politically undermine, and they politically undermine the cultural norms based on this ancient relig mystery religion premise. And the ancient mystery religion premise is that God is both male and female. This is in their Kabbalah. This is in their Kabbalah. They have a male God and a female aspect of God. And when they go to the wall and pray and they rock back and forth, they're actually mimicking having sex with Allah, with their God, in order to bring the male and female aspects back together to form the perfect man. This is their idea of the perfect man. And it comes from the ancient mystery religions. And that mystery religion predominantly is the, is the religion of Sybil, which is religion of Addis. And that is where we get our Statue of Liberty. It comes out of the same, the same mystery religion school. So all of these organizations that David uh, uh, referred to, they're all guided at the upper levels by this mystery religion. This is satanic, and it has to do with removing the hegemony of the heterosexual identity and replacing it with, a, with a, um, a, an identity that has nothing to do with the reality or what even Dr. Butler calls the divine performative. It has to undermine the divine performative, which is, which is what establishes the human identity as either male or female, okay? No mixture of the two. 
so that by undermining this 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 hegemony, this gender identity, we prevent the individual from inhabiting their their identity. And when you prevent the individual from inhabiting their identity, you prevent them from performing. And performing the will of Allah is what is at stake here. And this is what uh, David refers to because Islam is the middle ground here to bring these poles, this dialectical pole together. And you can't do that unless the identity is centered so that the performance is centered, the performance of the will of Allah as vice chairant. So all of these things are being set aside. Uh, the identity is being set aside according to the principles of the both the protocols of Zion that's already in there. All of these cultural uh, subversion is in the protocols. It's also in the Frankfurt School papers. It's all there to subvert the primary human identity in order to affirm their will, their purpose, and their purpose is this new world government, this new world order. So this is mystery religion based. And this goddess is an androgyne. That Statue of Liberty is an androgyne. It's a culmination, it's an amalgamation of many different goddesses, but the mother of these goddesses is a mother called Sybil. And she comes out of the mystery religions in ancient Anatolia. It's exactly where Rabbi Andelman said that these particular Jewish, uh, wicked Jewish uh, pretenders come from. And they are misguiding the entire Jewish congregation. Misguiding, and they're misguiding the world using these principles out of that ancient school. So as I said in the beginning, this is not a new phenomenon. Nothing new about it. It's old. But what's new about it is the technocracy that is allowing it to uh, permeate the entire world now through propaganda and the repetition of the lie, the repetition of the lie the repetition of the lie. There's nothing normal about homosexuality. There's nothing normal about gender confusion, not at all. As Dr. Unwin said a hundred years ago, and he's not been disproven, it is a major sign of the end of the civilization. And that's still in effect, that's what's coming in effect. This great reset is about that end. And they want to establish a new order. And this new order has nothing to do with the old order. And this new order will have to be destroyed. There's no doubt about that because it's not the order that has been established by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Brother David, did you have anything to add to that? Um, not really, no. I'd okay. like to know if there's any questions. Okay. Uh, yes. So the first question is, is there such a thing as authentic Sufis or is it all shrouded in occult mysticism? <laughs> such a thing as what? Authentic Sufis. 
authentic Sufism? Oh, well, I, I agree with Imran Hussein, who said he wished the word was never, never, never created Sufism. There's authentic mysticism, of course there is. And that has everything to do with the 149th percent of the gift of prophecy that the prophet said he left behind. Um, I have experienced myself uh, elements of this gift uh, without trying to be a Sufi. So uh, is there authentic Sufism? Yes, but it does it, is it something that is uh, that requires you to practice that tarika and all this sort of thing, I doubt it because the scripture says Allah reveals himself to whomever he wills, not to whom you will. Okay, so yeah, you can, you can attend these things and I'm sure that there's um, these schools and I'm sure that there's a wonderful moral and ethical responses about it, but is it necessary to become the Muslim of Muslims? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Um, uh, was, he, was the prophet a Sufi? Mm, I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't remember, remember anybody uh, walking around uh, or, or any of the hadith saying that they found him counting beads when he prayed. Uh, you know, this is what I, 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 don't, I don't think, I don't think there's an authentic school of Sufism. Now, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for that, of sure, of course. But the, 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 what, I'm, what I object to here is that this is an exclusive um, school in, in which to attain a particular mystical out, outlook or particular mystical estate. Okay, it, it's not necessary. Allah reveals himself to whomever he wills. Okay, and so the, the problem here with the schools of Tariqa, this, that, and the next one, is that they're not unlike the mystery school religions who have their own approach to Sufism and who have their own approach to attaining higher levels of consciousness. And what they do is they make a concerted effort to break into the heavens themselves, when in fact, the Sunnah is the exact opposite. The Sunnah of Allah is that the heavens open and they descend upon whomever it is that Allah wants to reveal himself to. So it, you, you don't have to be a, a member. What I'm trying to say is you don't have to be a member of one of these tariqa in order to experience that descent. You don't have to be a member, a Sufi, in order to hear the angel call your name and prevent you for, from committing a, a grievous error, which has happened to me on two, two occasions throughout my life. Okay. This is what I'm contending with. The prophet repeatedly told people who came to me, came to him and said, uh, look, I, I can't be like you. I, I, you know, I'm not as disciplined or, you know, and he said, look, just do your best. Just do your best. So my experience of Sufis is that most of them are so earthly impotent they're no mystically good because they pretend to be mystically perfect 
and when in fact they're no earthly good. The best Sufi to me is uh, someone like Omar Mukhtar, okay, who at the age of 70 got on his horse and went to war against the Italians who were invading his country. Um, and this was a man who sat and did practical things. Okay, the best Sufi to me is the man who comes home and asks his wife what he can do for her, not how he can be served. Do you need help with the kids? Do you need groceries? Okay, I see you're busy, I'll do the dishes. That's the best Sufi. Because those acts are more important. Those are the good deeds that are more important. They carry more weight than sitting there reciting Alhamdulillah 30,000 times in one week. Okay, so that's my take on it. Are there authentic Sufis? There are authentic spiritual people who have nothing to do with Sufism. And you will find them outside of Islam as well. Okay, our next question. Could you both comment on how Muslims today have aligned with the extreme left ideology and the false promises of uh, female empowerment, particularly celebrated feminists, I don't wanna say her name, and how they impact Muslim youth. I haven't been following that, David. Uh, I'll hand that over to you because it's not something I'm familiar with. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, how I would answer the question is basically, uh, you know, the tragedy is that uh, what's called the left in, um, in the West is basically a mix of uh, left-wing economics, uh, or basically socialism, and liberal uh, moral values. So we have to make sure that we distinguish the two because, uh, you know, the, the purpose... When you read, you read the Quran, basically what Muslims are advised to do is two things that is repeated over and over and over again. And I think this is an important key point that Muslims forget, and that is to establish prayer as a cat. So, you know, when you look at the history of, uh, of government institutions, the Islamic society was by far the most advanced. The, the first states, the first examples of of uh, welfare or like a welfare state was the Jewish uh, examples of Jewish government and at some extent Christian governments, but no, no government uh, uh, excelled in it like the Islamic government. So in Islamic governments, you had things like um, disability insurance, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, old age security, you know, all kinds, basically all, you know, a lot of what they call today's social safety nets or what uh, some would call today um, uh, social democracy. So in effect, you know, what Muslims need to do is establish a state that uh, does fundamentally two things that establishes, you know, in uh, the perspective of the West is that they establish a system that um, uh, establishes uh, moral, religiously or divinely based moral principles in combination with uh, institutions that safeguard the, the underprivileged. So uh, I think, you know, this is where, this is the lesson that uh, Muslims have 
uh, for the world. This is where the world is getting lost. Uh, this is why you know this sort of culture wars uh, debate uh, is getting out of hand, particularly in the United States, because that's how the dialectic works by uh, denying the truth. We have to get back to the like what Brother Armand is calling is the middle way, and uh, uh, we need to we need to teach the world, elucidate the fact that the West's idea of left wing is actually, uh, uh, it's a mixed package that is uh, the, the kind of left wing economics that we need wrapped up with the sort of um, liberal values that are actually uh, very destructive. Next question. Um, could you both comment on the the romanticism behind uh, Erdogan? Uh, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of division amongst Muslims when it comes to him, whether he well, you know what I'm getting at. So could you both comment on that? Your your views on him. In what role he's playing? All I, of this. I, I'm sorry, I missed the name. Erdogan, the president of Turkey. Oh, 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 oh. Um, uh, romanticism, you know, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, David, go. Ahead. I well, have I some thoughts. General, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a consequence of the world that we're living in. The, 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 the Islamic. Community, worldwide community is just such a such a sad state that people are desperate. I mean, this is what the Americans are doing, right? That's how they vote for people like Trump. Yeah. You know, all Trump has to do is say that he's he believes in the Bible and uh, he recruits, you know, half the Christian population. But that's not how you judge a true Christian. And Muslims need to need to learn the same lesson that you, you know, uh, you you judge a person person by their actions. They can come along and say whatever they want. They're going to say. You know, pray in the mosque and and call in the Quran and you know, uh, refer to verses to support their uh, their actions. But are they truly are they truly following the example of the Prophet? And uh, that's that's the question we need to be asking. Let's be careful because you know that's a common tactic is to appeal to the religious community by uh, making reference to the appropriate verses for nefarious uh, purposes. Indeed, that is the case, and uh, it seems to me that uh, that's what he's doing. Uh, but he's also taking a step further. Um, this wonderful program that has uh, been popularized, I've just become familiar with it uh, recently, that is romanticizing the, the spirit of the Turkish people is this uh, program called Ertegrul. And um, I, I recommend that people watch it. Uh, there are certain messages in it. Uh, which are lies, uh, especially those uh, uh, you know that uh, refer to Ibn al-Rabi and uh, his particular tariqa. Not exactly, uh, you know, what one has to do, but that's what they're trying to support. They're trying to support a false approach to uh, religious spirituality in the movie, uh, in the movie series. It's like a sort of a, a television series, if you will. I find it rather entertaining, 
and also informative and also encouraging with respect to the morals that are represented there when you when, when you when you view, view uh, some of the heroes i mean these are genuine heroes and i'm sure that genuine heroes exist i've met a few in my day i've had a few of them actually protect me from people who wanted to kill me so um they exist and whether or not Turkish society was established in that fact in that fashion, you know, say, say 800 years ago, I don't know because I'm not a historian and I haven't studied those regions in, in depth. But the tribal society that is set up there with Ertegrol and his brother and his mother and the father and all this sort of thing, this represents a pretty good um, uh, it's a pretty good representation of what the Khalifa should be, you see, on that, um, that microscopic scale. Now, the president of, uh, of Turkey is probably using that kind of program to bolster his moral position, I would imagine, because uh, it, it can be used uh, for propaganda purposes, especially if you know, he's seen to support it because that's not going to be seen as the Islamic way without uh, looking into all of the other um, misrepresentations that are there. There, there are a few. For example, um, the tribe uh, put up with the practice of witchcraft. There was a witch in their midst. That would never occur uh, in a truly Islamic uh, 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 government, you see, uh, whether tribal or, or statewide, it just wouldn't occur. But the witch is nevertheless permitted to have her own uh, uh, tent and her own practice as if she was some sort of counter position to their, um, to, to their resident uh, uh, healer. So he's probably using that kind of program in order to bolster his position. But this, this place, uh, you know, remains a, a mystery to me uh, out in, in the geopolitical sense because uh, I'm, I'm not an expert there. And I'm hoping, David, that we can uh, uh, unravel that as time goes by with uh, uh, a few other gentlemen that I want to have a, a conference with because they're more on the ground with the uh, watershed that, that, that Turkey and the Balkans, for example, the Ottoman Empire represented between the East and the West. And this is a mystery that needs to be um, unraveled because there's a lot of history here that has gone undiscussed or even undisclosed. What uh, Erdogan is doing now is positioning himself, and I believe you're correct, he's positioning himself as a uh, popular uh, leader. Uh, he's not practicing the Sunnah. The Sunnah is the exact opposite of what he's doing. And um, uh, because, uh, you know, you, you, you look at the Prophet uh, when, he, when he finally passed on and left us, um, he had nothing. Everything was given away. Uh, these uh, today's Muslim leaders, they, they, they are not practicing like that. Their ostentation uh, uh, is uh, outrageous. Uh, their, their personal aggrandizements are anything but Islamic, you see. So for many of them, including this man, their heaven is now uh, not, not, and not to come. 
especially if they're involved in lying to their people, because uh, the Quran makes it very clear, and so does the Hadith, that liars have no place in paradise, especially leaders who lie to their people. And uh, I believe he's not uh, giving his people full disclosure. Um, but I want to learn more about this situation. So uh, I have to defer to further education, dear sister. <laughs> Thank you. you know, it's funny you brought up uh, witchcraft. I think a point that would be interesting to study would be uh, if there, because the, the Bektashi uh, Sufis who were largely comprised of uh, Sabatian Dongmi, mm. they, uh, they believed that shamanism was the original uh, religion of the Turks. And so their, mm. their ideology formed the basis of pan-Turkism. And they also revere uh, Sufis like uh, Ibn Arabi. So it'd be fascinating to see. I mean, Bektashi Sufism didn't, it's, it's not, should be underestimated because the whole Arganicon movement is founded on the, the I guess, probably the, the ideology of the Bektashis, which is the, the idea that uh, the Turks, it's the whole gray wolf um, myth mythology, the whole gray wolf myth that the gray wolves uh, originated in the Altai mountains in Asia. And that's the original homeland of the Turks, something, something like that. So mm. interesting to see if there's a connection. Yes, I would like. I would like exactly. to hear more about that from uh, from other people as well, because that's a, there's a mystery there that, uh, that 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 we don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. And uh, myself, I believe uh, people like Ibn Arabi and uh, and a few others of his uh, stature have been misunderstood, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, even their uh, their works have been uh, mm, abused uh, for political reasons. And I think this. This article production is one of those uh, propaganda uh, efforts, despite what's good about it, that is trying to abuse uh, him in that fashion in order, to, in order to support this, maybe even gray wolf myth. I don't know. I haven't seen that yet. I've only seen a, a few of the, uh, the, the episodes, so I don't know. Anyway, sister, back to you. More questions? Follow-up question with that. What do you make of the claims that he is Don May? It's possible. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. You know, we, I, I, I don't want to be careful to, I mean, I'm not going to judge a man, only Allah is the judge, right? And I don't know the situation enough, but even as, as holy as a man is, you know, I heard the story, I, I hope I'm, I'm paraphrasing it correctly, but I think it was Abu Bakr who, who when he uh, took command, he, he asked, uh, his followers to make sure to remind him, you know, to stay on the right path. And uh, the story, if I remember correctly, maybe if this is not entirely accurate, it kind of tells the story that, you know, uh, somebody in the crowd lifted his sword and said something like, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> we, you know, a, true, a true Muslim does not follow a leader unconditionally. We, 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 we uh, pledge our allegiance to a leader. Uh, if if and only he commits himself to the Sharia. But uh, what has happened? <laughs> when, he, when he deviates, it's our responsibility to correct him. When he deviates, we don't make excuses of, you know, why he did so or, you know, he's still a good person. It's not, it's, the whole point is not whether he's a good person or not. Only Allah knows that. We just, we follow, we judge people by their actions. And somebody like him, you know, 
we, we, take, we take the good actions that he's doing and the, the actions that are questionable, we should question him. Mm. Yeah, there's not enough criticism being, uh, uh, being raised by people in positions uh, of, uh, to hold these leaders accountable, you see. So that, uh, I mean, what you're talking about is, uh, what's, a, what's a, of an essential nature here is the Shura. And the Shura is a group of individuals who are not a bunch of pious Sufis, if you will. Uh, they're a bunch of, uh, they're a group of gentlemen and women in particular who are well-informed, you see. And I want to bring the women in here because if you, if you, if you ignore the women, you're going to miss half the dean, you see. If you ignore uh, the, the feminine uh, input, you're going to miss half the dean. And that's one of the things that's gone wrong in Islam because of male chauvinism. But the people of the Shura now are there because of popularity or nepotism or uh, what they call is asabiya, this, uh, this tribalism, okay? So it's a favoritism and it's a bias which is uh, being practiced that has nothing to do with Islam. It's foreign to Islam. Islam uh, does not accept uh, bias, gender bias or social bias or tribal bias or, you know, uh, sectarian virus. It, ju it just doesn't accept that. Islam is based on your ability to do the job. You see, if you are qualified and the leaders of the people, not the, not the people, there's no democracy in Islam. The tribal leaders are the ones who elect the leader, the caliph, not the people, you see. The people don't have a say in this, especially those under the age of 40. The prophet made that very clear. They're not even mature yet, you see. So we have a lack of a mature, unbiased shura. And because the shura is not holding their local caliphs or their local leaders, their local presidents and prime ministers accountable, uh, Iblis is having a field day with all his whispers. I mean, those whispers are out there uh, by the legions and they are allowing the nafs of these people to run amok amongst the people. And self-aggrandizement is the rule of the day. You go to any Muslim country and that's what it, that's what, what it is. I, I spoke to uh, one of my students and he said the local imam has uh, uh, X number of wives and three estates and I don't know how many cars. This is not the Sunnah. I mean, if the, if the prophet had 50 camels and somebody needed those camels, he gave them away, you see. So what, whatever was brought into the state was not his. <laughs> It was, it belonged to Allah and he was merely the administrator, you see. That's the, that's, that's the, 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 the correct position. And the more correct position as the people, the person who's a leader is a man who really doesn't want the job. He really doesn't want it. It scares him because the responsibility is overwhelming. 
So anyone who's running for office, they're automatically disqualified according to Islamic spiritual principles, you see. So that tells you the state that we're in. And this lack of criticism and this lack of uh, the ability to be criticized, okay, is another problem because that's a lack of uh, humility. The humble cannot, the, the proud cannot serve Allah. They also belong in hellfire. If you're too proud to be corrected and admitted that you're wrong, yeah, yeah, you, 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 you belong in the hellfire, which brings up to the point, yes, David, you are correct about this Jewish thing. And yes, I agree with you on that, but it's not a big problem, you see? <laughs> it's not a big problem. And the, 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 the religious Jew is the minority. And most of them are in fact following the Zionist right into the rabbit hole. You see, whether they're non, whether they're practicing religious religionists or not. Okay, but I, I stand corrected when I make that overwhelming uh, uh, statement. But everyone knows what I mean when I say Jew. Okay, everyone knows this. Okay, <laughs> now. So I stand corrected and I admit that you're correct. Okay, so I'm not too, too proud to say that I am wrong. Okay, but I'm still going to use that term because I don't like the Zionist term. It doesn't hit the mark for me. And that may be my idiosyncrasy. Okay, but hey, you are correct. You are correct. And the point I'm trying to make here is that the leaders today have to be humble enough to say that they're wrong on whatever the position might be. And that goes for our doctors. <laughs> our doctors are not, you see. Most of them are wrong about the current COVID thing and they're not going to admit that they're wrong. They've been wrong about a lot of things. They've been wrong about a large percentage of the medicines that they've been giving for the last 30 or 40 years, and they won't admit it. They, they'll accept the papers, they'll stop using the medicine, but they'll never admit that they were wrong. They'll never admit that they made a mistake, you see. When's the last time that you, that, that you encountered a, a physician who had said, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? Oh. That's about as many times as I've encountered a woman who said that. Oh, okay. I'm touching on a gender issue now, aren't I? Yes. The problem here that David is referring to is that of pride and the lack of criticism. So in answer to your question, yeah, that's what's taking place and it's missing. Humility in positions of leadership is missing in the Ummah. It's missing. It's a sad state. It's a sad day. And that's why the Ummah is following the Christian, and I'm sorry to say this, the Forbidden Jewish Christian Alliance. I, I think that's in the Quran, right? The Forbidden Judeo-Christian Alliance, the Jews and the Christians who make an alliance with each other. That's why they're following them right into the rabbit hole. Okay, it doesn't say the Christians and the Zionist alliance. It says the Christians and the Jews who make an alliance with each other. Okay, 
and most of the Jews that I know have are participating in this alliance, and they're they're pushing it. If the, if a Christian says, "Oh yes, next year in Jerusalem," they shout "Amen" along with them. <laughs> you see, so um, this kind of um, arrogance and this kind of um, uh, refusal to criticize leaders is what's causing is another reason that's causing the Ummah uh, to follow this forbidden alliance. Okay, this is my final question. What, what is going on with all of these leaks, if you want to call it that, of these adverse reactions to the vaccines? Is that intentional? Is it a mix of organic and intentional? What, what is going on with that? Uh, I don't think they're leaks. Uh, I think David will agree with me that the system that they're trying to establish and manage is too big. <laughs> and uh, it can't, by uh, nature, uh, be, man be managed without these things, without these things occurring. Um, if, you, if you study the principles of uh, laid down by John Gall in his um, book on uh, institutional systematics, the larger an institution becomes, the more leaks it's going to have, the less efficient and economic it's going to be, unless it's established on a smaller model that works well, you see. And that brings me back to the example of the Ertegrul, this, uh, this wonderful uh, uh, program, because if you, exclude some of the lies that are uh, that are represented the tribal uh, governance is the governance uh, according to divine principle it's the governance of the Khalifa okay and it works it works despite all their problems the tribe is surviving despite this, that, and the next murder and act of treachery, the tribe is surviving as long as the system of governance is in, in place. And that system of governance has everything to do, again, with correct heterosexual gender identity as established by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so the, uh, the, the, the point is that when you have a small system that works like that, then and this was the Islamic perspective. See, the small system that worked like that was the charter of Medina. It worked, okay? It worked. And when a certain group of people <laughs> became treacherous, they were, they were judged and cast out, you see? And the tribe survived, and then that tribe expanded. And that tribe became the Muslim empire. Unfortunately, after the fall of Ali, which was an act of treachery, uh, and you, you know that the, the, the original caliphs uh, were, were murdered, you see. So they were pursued by treachery, which means that the, after the prophet, the, the correct form of this simple system of governance was never reestablished. 
the principles of Islam, the moral and ethical principles of Islam were put into practice everywhere but the palace, with the exception of a few. With the, a, a few like, for example, uh, Salahuddin, who, whom everyone praises, and for good reason, you see. That system of divine governance will work if it's expanded on and kept in order. So that um, the, the caliphate should ex uh, spread itself out and the tribes in groups in each place should have uh, their own autonomy and be held accountable to the center, to the caliph. So that certain decisions, all major decisions at the local level are made at the local level, not at the center level. And that's where you meet this fascism, you see, whether it's left wing or right wing, it's still the central government making the decisions and dictating for everybody at the local level. That's a mistake. And when you have that kind of uh, uh, governance, it's a wrong system and there are going to be leaks. You cannot be controlled. Whereas if you allow local autonomy based on the same model at each level, at each site, this system will preserve itself no matter what comes against it. And there won't be need for leaks because those leaks, whatever, uh, the, the, those, the evil that is leaking would never be permitted to exist to begin with once it's found out. And that's what Islam is to do. Islam is to uh, assure what is good and prevent what is harmful. And that includes people. You see, when the prophet entered Medina, I say this over and over again, most of the people were forgiven, but a few were not. They were put to death because they could never, ever be trusted with the welfare of the commonweal. So they were cast out. So this has to do with John Gall's systematics, the simple system that works you expand that, but based on the simple principles, you see. And the simple principle is divine order. And today's system lacks that divine order. So the evil is everywhere creeping in and it's leaking out. It cannot be controlled. And the effects of that evil, these so-called side effects, they're not side effects, they're direct effects. Okay, the side effects is a, is a lie, it's a doublespeak. You see, these are direct effects of the vaccines, the direct effects of the medications you see, on the human body, okay? They're not side effects. They come out, they leak out because there's no one stopping them. The doctors should be standing up and saying, no, there's a group of them that are here and in, in, in America and in Germany, even in Australia, but they're being marginalized because there's no one to stop the leaders. All the men with the rifles and the guns and the weapons are supporting the flag. They're supporting the Statue of Liberty. They're supporting this whole system, you see, that is now international. 
and they're not stopping the evil. Why? Because they've been they've been brainwashed. Three generations of the Frankfurt School now has brainwashed the West. And the same in communist China. And the same in most other countries where you have public education. And that includes the Muslim countries. Even with their uh, religious educational systems, they've been infiltrated. And people are just blindly following their leaders without criticizing. As David said, you know, the, the caliph stood up and said, well, if I go wrong, what are you going to do? And the one man said, hey, I got a sword here. I know what to do with it. Okay. All right. I know how to take your head. I'm very skilled at it. So beware. These men, the last of them that I know about was General Patton, and they murdered him, you see. Patton wanted to stop the whole thing. So did MacArthur. They wanted to stop the whole thing and reset the culture. You know, both Christians, they would have reset it on a lie, but nevertheless, it was the closest lie to Islam. <laughs> you see, uh, the moral and ethics are all right if the theology is wrong. So you got to make, make do with what is uh, best, you see. But they were stopped. And now the men are all just saluting, following orders. And if you listen to some of the testimonies from uh, many of the military wives and whatnot, they will, they will tell you that the men in the military are all corrupt, especially at their upper levels. And many of them are involved in homosexuality. And that's a great haven for gay people, okay? They like the power. And if you'd like, we can have another, ses another session and uh, I will explain why they like the power because I've just written a book on it. <laughs> Studied this thing, you know, intimately. So uh, that's my take uh, on, the, on this particular uh, subject um, of uh, the leaks. The system is faulty from the ground up, it's gonna leak. Brother David, did you have anything to add? Um, it just made me, it just reminded me of the link between uh, homosexuality and fascism. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, it, uh, it goes all the way back to Sparta. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the movie 300, of course, was popularizing that. Mm -hmm. It's basically a homoerotic movie. Um, you know, that's why, in fact, I think I think what uh, Brother Omar is referring to is the interview with Kay Griggs, mm -hmm. who exposes what's called Cherry Marines. And um, in fact, this is, if you, yeah, this, it, it ties in very, like, you know, these rings are run pedophile rings, uh, particularly catering to homosexual uh, perversions. And, um, you know, fundamentally, uh, the strange thing is that it's it's tied to uh, it's tied to the idea of of masculine discipline, and they, you know, the the thing is that uh, the true masculinity is to, and this is what Islam teaches. This is the beauty of what Islam teaches, and of course another thing that Muslims have forgot, 
true masculinity is that a man should have this courage to risk his life to protect the vulnerable, to protect mm. the to, be, to protect the people who are uh, being exploited, who are unfairly at disadvantage. That's that's the kind of you know that's really the ultimate purpose of the message of Islam for the male. So the male should be out and uh, doing everything he can to rescue the the afflicted, both the poor, the underprivileged, the oppressed. That's fundamentally the goal of Islam. And the thing about what fascism does is that it 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 takes man's sort of martial nature but then isolates it and so that they they valorize war for its own sake yes. so they see they see war as a means of men uh, attaining his own superiority at the expense of the weak and so the the compassion is equated with uh, womanhood uh, which is the opposite of the message of Islam. So, mm. uh, so what they end up doing is that they they uh, glamorize or idolize human what their perverted version of of human male masculinity at the expense of what they consider human weakness. So this is why fundamentally, as particularly I mean, going all the way back to Sparta, but you can see it. Uh, particularly in the last century or so, of how fascism and homosexuality has been very closely intertwined. This is a subject I cover extensively in my book because it's really an essential uh, core aspect of it. Uh, you know, it goes all the way back to from Crowley up until today. You find that you know most of the the the, the fascists in the 20th century are uh, are habituated with homosexuality. Goes back to the Templars as well, to early fascist movement. And uh, yeah, again, based on the a reversal of Islamic law, reversal of human nature, reversal of you know true man's true nature, which is denied, and uh, and then this uh, valorization of uh, of uh, idolization of the of the male. And so basically, the male is so idolized that basically you choose a, a male partner as opposed to a woman who is basically ultimately despised as a weak being. Yeah, because we, 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 we men, you see, us real men, we know that you women cannot be trusted. <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're so disloyal, you see. Yeah, that, that, that's what they teach. That's one, that's one of their core doctrines in this particular approach to manhood. It's the wrong approach. It's completely wrong. And... Uh, David's quite right here, and this is an element of the discussion that should be carried on into the future. Uh, if we, we should have a, 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 a separate forum, particularly on sexuality and identity and how it is politicized, that sort of thing. Um, I think today we just sort of, you know, touch on the subject and open it up uh, to things in avenues which are not discussed. But even in Islam, you see, you have such a, an inversion of the same principle that many of your imams are pederast and they're, they're assaulting their students in the, in the, the, the various uh, uh, religious schools 
all over the world. It's not, it's not just something that you see in Afghanistan or Pakistan. You see it in Malaysia. I'm sure it's just like uh, many of these uh, Jewish religious schools, the rabbis are doing the same thing because there's an occult religious principle here that says it's an act. They, they teach that it's an act of union with the Godhead, you see, to have this particular act and especially to pass on the authority from the teacher to the pupil through the act of drinking the sperm, spermatophagia. This is part of the mystery system, okay? It's undiscussed. People don't want to, do, people don't want to confront it, okay? So this is all over the world. And there are various reasons for this inversion various reasons, but you see, well, why does, it, uh, why does it show itself in pederasty and especially in anal intercourse? Well, because, well, there's, you know, Allah only made a couple of holes, you see, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's not much, and there's only one phallus. I mean, you've got to put it someplace, right? And if you can't put it in a woman because you're too poor to marry, you're going to put it in a boy and that's what they do then they rationalize it you see and what uh, what brother david just brought up here is the one of the rationalizations you see and what i brought up was another we can't trust women you see it's a, it's a rationalization for the perverted act then they make a religion out of it <laughs> or a pseudo religion or they hide a cult within a cult you see so um, this is uh, unfortunate, but it, it, it's a reality. And it is at the center of not just the left, but also the right. Not just the right, but also the left. Most of these, most of these men involved in the, in the uh, Frankfurt School and other movements that are culturally subverted, they're, they're homosexuals. So they're on both sides of the dialectic. Doesn't matter where you go. And there are reasons for that. There are psychological reasons and there are physiological reasons for it. Developmentally neurological reasons for it. So, so enough on that for the moment. <laughs> Any more, more questions, sister? Um, did anybody in the room have any questions for Brother David or Dr. Omar? Going once, going twice. Okay, sold. All right, I want to thank you both for being here this evening. I know it's getting late for you, uh, Brother David. So I just really appreciate it. This has been very insightful. And like you said, we just scratch the surface. There's just not enough time <laughs> to really get to the heart of the matter. Mm. Alhamdulillah. Any closing it's thoughts? I'm sorry, Brother David, what was that? Oh, thank you for putting this together. Alhamdulillah. Thank you yes. for your It's wonderful. Dr. Omar, did you have anything before we close out? Uh, I think we should pursue the subject uh, of sexology. And I want to thank you as well uh, for this opportunity. And uh, may Allah reward you for it, dear sister, because um, I think it's of great benefit for 
uh, Dilma, and for your, especially for those who uh, uh, can tune in and listen to us and will see this uh, in the future. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Okay. Well, inshallah, we'll be in touch. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Wa alaikum assalam.